Well, good afternoon to you. This is Alan Seymour, your host here on the Future of Sport on the All In Sports Talk Network. Delighted today. There's a bit of balance here for me because, yes, you heard it first with me here. I actually interviewed an Evertonian last week, which was on my show last week. So it's only fair, isn't it, to get a bit of balance. I have a real, true, fanatic Liverpool FC supporter on my show today and we're going to talk all things Liverpool and many many other things that are to do with social media education and so on. So my guest is Simon Brundish. Simon tell us a little bit about your background in some or all of those introductory comments I've made. (laughs) Hey Alan it's great to uh, to be on thanks. I'm old now, um, as most people might have seen it with the Twitter. Um, I'm well, in, well into my forties, no hair. Um, that comes from losing from being married and having two kids. Um, I had a fine head of hair on my wedding day, um, and twenty odd years um, working as a sports scientist and strength and conditioning coach, which is what it's called now. But you know, most people might know as a fitness coach. Um, over the course uh, since 96 leaving Birmingham University doing a masters at Loughborough um, I've worked with uh, within professional sports for half of that time um, I since uh, from having kids I broke my back 10 years ago at the same time as I really wasn't enjoying the sports thing like High performance has become is, is evolved since then into this this high performance paradigm, um, as opposed to sport and other things like. Um, and it's probably a better culture than the ten years that I was heavily involved. Um, but I prefer to um, with a program that we've worked on um, in primary schools is to, to develop Olympians of the future by giving them the. Um, the, the movement vocabulary um, necessary to, to fulfil their physical potential. Um, so it's generally what I'm doing these days, working with a, a programme called Strength Lab Superheroes in primary schools, making them awesome. Uh, I also have, like, every day, I have, uh, I, I, like, I like to improve the physicality of the whole gamut of life. I mean, Simon, what an introduction. I do believe, I mean, there are a lot of touch points, obviously, from what you've said already, that, that we can probably evolve and develop uh, in the interview. The point I really probably uh, relate to most is sport is a magnificent vehicle for good. Sport is very, very important. You use the word vocabulary when we're talking about physicality as well. And I I really do. I've not heard that very often. And I kind of like that link because I think we do have to articulate. And I'm sure we'll come on to that uh, quite uh, quite soon, if not, you know, if not before the end of the interview, when we get onto social media, etc. The connection between great athletes and the discipline and the way, you know, talent evolves and emerges how much do you think the kind of science approach or maybe not in balance here but maybe as a as a parallel to the scientific approach the importance of relationship building and and the kind of ways in which we can now use communication tools to make for better sports performance oh it's a huge thing the fa have a have um 
is trying to create a, a developmental model. The FA have the four corners model, which is like a physical and emotional, uh, a ta tactical and a technical. Uh, you have to work on all of these four facets. But, but humans, as I get older, the thing I understand is that humans are even more multifaceted than I believe, uh, than I believed. All the time I'm learning that I know less about people and less about myself. And, and so I think you need to use your, your experiences of, with science to underpin education, to underpin your coaching methodologies, to create as, as, as wide ranging and as varied a toolbox as possible for enabling kids and athletes with the right tools to solve the right problems, like physical yeah. generally, but, but they, they might be an emotional tool that solves a physical problem that they have to solve. Um, so yeah, you can't you can't just shout at a kid to go and run faster because that's not how it works. Go and tackle harder. But you know, like even if you just take that one thing, tackling harder. What what does that entail? If if I want my kid to go go five meters to his left or her left, um, I want them to rotate their hips. I want to oh, I want them to um, extend at the knee. I want them to extend at the, at the ankle. I want them to retain their balance and core control. And then, and that's without even moving. That's without actually leaving the spot. So I want. I, I, it's really important that they hear what what um, I want. They can then assess the situation and inter We give them the skills so they can interpret what I'm telling them as what they need. The best thing that they can do in that moment. So instead of directly copying what I'm telling them, they need to be able. To, we need to give them the skills so they can interpret, and then um, and it's just a layer of their filter of what should I do right now, and they can solve that problem themselves. So it's so it's, an, it's a mental, it's a cognitive, it's an emotional, a tactical, but very much a physical. I mean, and you have, you yeah. have to approach all of these things when teaching. Teaching and you know using all of the skill set. I'm going to pick up on two things there, Simon, because I mean this is fantastic and fascinating for me. My show is Future of Sport, but the Future of Sport has so many touch points. And if I'm wearing my education hat, fine. But I'm also, as you clearly know, and one of the purposes of my show is to talk sport business. But I don't believe you can talk sport business in isolation. You know, you tell someone to go out and sell. But selling involves, you've used the word here, toolbox. And you have to have a lot of things in that toolbox. And which is why the fascination for me, having conversations, having interviews like I've done on my show, you know, I don't need to necessarily talk to the brand manager of Nike because I can talk to a fan and get as much insight into branding and fan engagement and lots of other things. And I think that's the great part about what we all do. Uh, do in sport let me just kind of maybe segue move, move our interview it's not an interview a real good conversation with Simon this morning um, podcasting I mean I'm involved notionally in podcasting now because Steve Gennaro and some of the people you know invited me almost a year to the day before I was going to launch a, a, a conference in sport business with students where I met you last year this time in Worcester and I was asked to put this show together 
And yeah, I'd been involved commercially. I'd been involved. I'd run radio stations up and down the country. You know, I'd obviously been involved in teaching and learning, but I'd never physically done radio per se as, as a kind of interview. As this has gone on, it's been fantastic for me to get, you know, responses. I believe you've been doing podcasting for many years. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in podcasting. Um, I've been many years. I suppose podcasting is fairly new. I, I first learned of podcasts um, uh, during my love of the, the, the beginning of my love with American sports, okay. with uh, baseball. Yeah. Um, and it was more, it's these things, technology always comes from America. And so I started, I started listening to a couple of podcasts. Uh, basically, the Daily Sports Show from New York, because I'm a big Yankees fan. Okay. Uh, the show. And I've listened to that literally every day for 12 years. And so that gave me an insight into what, how, and then the greatest podcast on earth is called The Podcast, P-O-S-C-A-S-T, by a, a genius called Joe Posnanski, who's right. a sports journalist and the greatest sports journalist in the world. So uh, you go and listen to it, go and read his stuff if you haven't, it's amazing. Um, so there, there, there's me looking at quality and also at how it affects my life and how I, I use it in everyday life when I'm when I'm driving, it's always a podcast. I don't listen to the radio at all anymore. I barely listen to music, it's just podcasts. And then um, then the great Anfield Rap, the inception of yeah. Anfield Rap, um, and the phenomenal work that they did and now do uh, on a paid platform. Um, and about three years ago, between chatting amongst them, and then there were a couple of other Liverpool podcasts that started, um, the Day Trippers yeah. um, with Trev Downey and Phil, and um, there were a couple of others that died, and then it kind of left with the Day Trippers and uh, Ambled Index yeah. with Gags and John Ritchie. And I was chatting with them just on Twitter, as Twitter does, and John asked me if I fancied coming on, and that was probably three years and about 150 episodes ago. So I now... Um, uh, what we do and how we do it has kind of evolved. So I now do a show once a week called Under Pressure, which kind of utilizes my um, work skill set of um, using data and um, I'm a UEFA B coach as well and applying these those kind of skills to analyze what goes on in a, in a Liverpool match because I'm a big Liverpool fan, as, as are you. Um, and yeah, so we do that uh, once a week. Yes, the, the reach of podcasting is is insane, but in a way that TV isn't because it's so selective. It's so unique to you, the individual person because you actively have to go and grab it to listen to it yeah. instead of just flopping in front of a TV and being washed over by whatever's on. So you have you you almost act actively participate in it by getting it, and then then there's that interactivity with Twitter and Facebook, linking it all together. So it's a whole new it's a whole new communication vehicle. And and I, I think it's fascinating. I think we're only at the beginning of it and uh, I think it's a it's a really interesting journey to be in on. I mean Simon, brilliant segue here because we are only at the beginning of it. And we're seeing good and bad, and that, you know though that extreme polarity within it, I think is being demonstrated. There is no more better contextualisation, almost seeing what's happening with Liverpool Football Club at the moment. Re, 
you know, instant gratification on the one hand. Fans, you look at their timelines, you know, the conflicting comments that they make from one week, you know, Klopp is a genius, to the next, FSG out and Klopp is, you know, whatever descriptive you want to put on it. And it's finding the balance, I suppose, that you use. But, you know, we've got to hear the voice. You know, everyone has got a voice today. Maybe that's what the creative and content uh, creation and content marketing is all about. And in some ways, it's either uh, misused or everybody believes that they're a celebrity uh, and so on. What I want to touch upon here, though, is, you know, you've been a fan of podcasting and you pick up all of those things. I remember when I first got into Twitter and social media 2008, 2009, and I was doing some research in um, sport business, and I, I stumbled across the development of viral marketing through Seth Godin, and he talked about permission marketing. And, you know, you don't want to be bombarded, you know, with every ad to say, buy this, you know, painkiller, because the one you use and the one you choose is probably the one you're going to stay with. So don't, you know, insult me by throwing these things out. If you ask permission from me and we get together, then we've got a start point. And that's why I think Twitter is brilliant, because it enables you to make the contact, contact, contact to begin with. But that's yeah. only the starting point, And it's how you develop. What would you summarise, maybe, from your experience, both... I'm not going to, well, professionally in a kinder way because you're a podcaster and you know what it's about. And you, as Simon, the Liverpool fan, and the balance between the two, is there such a thing? And what, what, what do you see as being some of the strengths of social media in our kind of uh, interest group, Simon? I think I, I have two very, very different um, experiences with social media, with, with Twitter particularly, because I think particularly Twitter is a very, very different place to, to the other social media forms. Okay. Um, I, from, from a work perspective, I have a solid couple of thousand followers okay. and I, that I follow and we exchange a vast amount of uh, knowledge and of research papers and there's a great intellectual discussion daily on, okay. on any topic, on coaching, on sports science, on research. It's phenomenal. But then there's my Liverpool Twitter, which on any given day, it can be a joyous, wondrous place of um, a collective celebration or it can be a cesspit. Correct. And it's definitely somewhere in the middle. What we try to do uh, with our podcast is create objectivity. So, so we look at games and we look at the context of games over the season and under Klopp and then compare Klopp to other managers, yeah. compare, compare Liverpool to other clubs and other periods of time. So we can kind of create, not create, but we can, we can reflect objectively where we currently are and why, potentially, with numbers. So it can influ influence in some ways people's opinion, but generally Twitter, I think it has, despite you and I being of, uh, uh, of whiter hair or no hair, <laughs> um, there's, there's a lot of younger people that yeah. use Twitter, that use it as a voice. It's, it's even now, we're, I think I, it was my eighth year anniversary. I, I started Twitter really early. I'm, a, I'm one of those weird early adopters that, that um, I remember, I think John Burkhart was talking at you. He was, uh, he was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm one of those early adopters, but I, I generally tend to hang in there if I can. Um, and the, a lot of these kids, K 
kids being under 23, and, and they've got a voice, and they've no, they don't know any different. This is their, their entire adulthood, and they just shout. Yeah. So that, that, they don't know how else to communicate. They're either looking at a screen or shouting, or looking at a screen shouting. And they think everybody wants to hear what they've got to say. And, and I, I think it's representative of our culture. I think it's not Twitter. Twitter is just, it's just a vessel for our culture, which is becoming more and more vacuous, sadly. And people just shout, and they, they expect to be heard, and they're disgusted if you don't hear them and think they're right. But nobody's researching to have an evidenced, balanced view. They're just right because they said so. Um, and, and with football particularly, it's, it's also fed by a championship manager in FIFA being so lifelike that I think it deludes people into believing that they're good at these things, that I'm a good manager because I won the league twice on FIFA or a championship manager. And, and they become, particularly championship managers, becoming more lifelike supposedly in, in how it's structured in a day-to-day routine of training and looking after contracts and all that stuff. People believe it's real. And they, they, they do believe that that's exactly how football works. Yeah. But that's one person in, in like one role. In any job, there are people like humans. And, and we don't have the ability to... to we're almost becoming... Um, I see on TV sometimes uh, like kids with Asperger's yeah. that can't read a face. They can't read emotions. And so, so it's like they can't read a room. So you're just speaking away that... You're offending 400 people without any idea you're offending 400 people or without any great care. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be an interesting world over the next 20 years when, where we're in, a, we're in a situation where everybody likes to be offended, it seems anyway, and nobody cares if they offend people. So you, you get, you end up with Donald Trump as the president of America. He, we, we like to think he is, I'm going off a tangent here. Yeah, no, we you're like not. Keep going. Yeah. I, I actually just think he's the perfect representative of our current society. Yeah. I mean, there is just, we're going to keep going here, you know. All the rules have gone out of my briefing <laughs> and all the rules of, you know, this is a very, very special interview and a special show and no, uh, no, no patronising intended there. Let me pick up on, on a couple of the things. Entitlement. You know, some of the culture that you've touched upon, I'm speaking, so I am right, or I am an expert and my voice is going to carry, you know, the, the, the art of listening, engaging conversation, criticism is fine. I mean, this is my big, you know, we all need to be more critical, ask a question, develop the argument, listen to the outcomes. But, you know, most of Twitter today is, this is me, I'm right, you listen. And then it it kind of becomes, in some cases, abusive. And and nobody really understands that necessity. I always... Uh, I think, just to jump in there, I think it it can all be categorised in one word. Curiosity. I think there is a huge lack of curiosity in a whole generation. Nobody wants to know why. Well, nobody's curious as to, to ask a question. Right. You just you just take for, you read something, so it's right, and that's it. And nobody's no like I'm working with primary school kids, and they're just not curious thinkers. I mean, I, wow! I'm going to say there. I mean, I'm. Uh, currently writing a textbook I'm asking questions all the time I'm using data, I'm using research all the things that 
you know, if I was a neutral here and all the overflow that's coming out of our interview is really where we need to be, I think. I think this is great, not only for, uh, for me and you in a, in, a, in a conversation today, but for the kind of audiences and lots of things I'm planning at the moment. And I want to touch upon the evidence and, and some of the things. You talk a lot, well, you have talked already about data uh, uh, and the use of analytics and those kind of things, performance-wise. Do you think that you could use that from a cultural perspective, from a communication stroke business perspective, even given the fact that perhaps your key objectives are, you know, how to make the future Olympians, as I think you alluded to at the beginning. What other considerations do you think? I know it's a very, it's not a fastball question, it's a very loaded question, it's a very detailed question, but, but maybe give some thoughts to... You know, the extension and future trends of, you know, the, the Internet of Big Data or the Internet of Big Things, whatever. I, I think I think in two regards, I think it's really, really exciting and all-encompassing. And used in the right way, it could be phenomenally yeah. informative to, to develop our society, society in a positive way. I'm terrified that's not the case because we're humans yeah. and we're broken. Um and we are inherently flawed. So what what will happen is that the data will get used and abused, and it, it, it will be used to leverage situations to um, to persuade the wrong people that they're right by limiting the type of data they have access to. And it goes back to Trump again. Trump, the first election won on Facebook. Yeah. Because people read stuff, they saw the data because it was the data that they got. They got. Um, that got put in front of them it was right because it's our society and we don't question anything um, and we end up in this situation where the leader of the of the free world is openly insulting, calling out and threatening to wipe off the face of the planet a very volatile leader of a nuclear country publicly like that's where we end up because because of the misuse of data. So we can have these wonderful ideas, these wonderful um, plans for the, for, the, for the mining of data, for machine, uh, uh, machine learning, which is phenomenal. It ends up getting us a new iPhone that knows, that tells me where I need to be next yep. and tells me in, uh, in four hours' time um, what time I need to leave to get to my next appointment without me having to ask. It just knows this stuff. It learns your behavior. So it tells me when I'm near a Starbucks. It's all machine learning. It's all genius stuff. But we are limited by humans controlling that data flow. And humans are inherently flawed and led by money. I mean, do you think as well then... Um, I mean, there is a sanitization almost of personality quite often... You know, with, with, with Twitter, you know, when people are, you know, are asked to put out tweets on behalf of somebody else, it's almost like third parting or interpreting or inferring without. And I'm a massive believer, you know, I'm, you couldn't get more advocate, an advocate of using social media, new technologies, etc. You know, I've recently retired from a university. I'm seeing a lot of developments with things like MOOC and online learning, etc. But I'm not a massive fan of putting online learning to replace traditional university and proper education, as I would call it, because this is proper education. I can see you. We can see each other. We're 
we're interpreting, we're critical, we're evolving things, we're having a conversation by asking questions. Can you always do that, you know, without ever meeting a person or, or interpreting something just from the online creativeness that you've developed and so on? So I think we have to... We, we have to appraise that and too much sanitization of things without, you know, thinking about the human face is probably one of the big criticisms of social media and maybe the future of the maybe, way technology is used. Maybe. You, you, you literally, you saying those things now made me think perhaps we are a generation or even half, where maybe we're eight years away from having a whole generation that have only been engaged in that way Correct. so that all of the preconceived wisdom we have about being human about having to have those uh, human communications maybe they'll be redundant because so many people don't know how to deal with them you don't there's no point marketing marketing to those people anymore yeah no 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 there's no point marketing in that way anymore we've created maybe through the brilliant uh, the brilliance of zuckerberg um, and and amazon We've created, this is the only way we are marketed to now. So maybe we have evolved or devolved to only be receptive to that type of marketing. Maybe that's a possibility. I don't know. I, I think it's distinctly so. And, uh, and in fact, a lot of the new research and a lot of the new pointers, you know, I, I think I went to a graduation ceremony two years ago now where those students had known nothing else from, from birth through, you know, to when they graduated, of, you know, anything other than having internet in front of them, you know, however long, and then once you, as you say, six, eight years, however many, they will, I joined Twitter in 2009, I went to uh, the University of Northampton to set up new courses in degrees in PR and marketing, and then eventually sport marketing in 2004, you know, here we are approaching 2020, and that generation, you know, will have only known a certain way. Let's uh, it, it, it go. Kind of creates, sorry, it kind of creates. Like, if you go back to us, if we if we draw that parallel to our yeah. childhood, to our lives, the playground culture, right, where where there is a bit of bullying, but there is also um, a camaraderie. There is there is great value in being connected, yeah. being one of the gang. What social media has done is created that. This, it, there is, it's, it's never ending. So, so on Facebook, particularly, like the perfect example is there are two great examples, right? Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. Is the greatest single piece of marketing in history. It exists on anywhere close to the level that it sold at the greatest selling book series of all time, becoming one of the biggest movies of all time, entirely because of Facebook. There are, there's, there's research into this. It, it, it's because women pretended not to like the sex stuff and they nudge, nudge, winked each other about it on Facebook that their mate went, oh, I better have a look at this. Yeah. Oh, aren't we saucy together? Yeah. And it opened, it opened like this, uh, this uh, acceptable level of, of sexuality that they'd never, never openly been allowed to have before. It was almost like naughty boys. Yeah. The boys are always like this. And then it opened a whole... Women are allowed to be like this too. And then it made three billion quid for, for um, the crazed writer of a terrible book just through Facebook. And, and, 
in a more noble sense, um, a- ALS with right. the um, ice bucket challenge. Yeah. Very, very similar thing. It was, I and, remember and, that, yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant. Everybody did it. it Absolutely. Did it. Yeah. And, and so it opened a whole way of marketing that had never been done before. I mean, creating narrative, obviously, is classic. Developing the viral, which I touched upon, and let it spread, and the momentum, and all of those things. You feel like you're not left out. Absolutely, yeah. And, and I mean, with, with tribes, you know, I mean, I've used... I mean, Harley-Davidson's a fantastic brand to use about that tribal association and the metaphors and, and everything else. And, yeah. and, and I can only be positive about that. And I think our conversation and, uh, and our interview today, I mean, some of the touch points here, wow, you know, we could, um, and we must get together. I want to talk on uh, offline to you in a few moments' time about some other things that, that we'll be doing, which I, I think can come very strongly out of this interview. Let's kind of put some summations, if we can, um, Simon, to some of the... We haven't talked about our favourite club. Uh, I've seen words banded about unbelievably emotive and uh, unbelievably uh, not acceptable to my mind, you know, about players and, and get rid of them and the abuse and that the Klopp is, uh, is a no mark and we can go on and on. Trying to be objective and trying to put your strong allegiance to the club and many things that you've done. And you're a lot closer, you know, I'm here in Cambridge, you're um, very close to what happens, at, you know, in, in Liverpool and Anfield. Tell us or talk a little bit, maybe, because I know my fans want to hear this and I know my audience want to hear this. You know, what are your immediate uh, positives and negatives or concerns or considerations about the uh, the situation at Anfield at the moment? I, I'm not any more or less worried than I was four weeks ago when I thought we were going we got a really good chance to win the league if we're smart. Yeah. And and I started the season basically on the premise that if if Klopp is smart enough to plan ahead and rotate strategically, I think Come March, we'll be in a really, really good position to win the league. My biggest worry was that he he wouldn't because he never has before. So I, I'm a great advocate of using using evidence of history to to project what's gonna what's gonna happen in the future. Okay. Um, but he is he has rotated as very obviously, and he's been criticised for at a level he has never done before. I think it's strategic. I think it's very deliberate. I really admire what he's trying to do. I think it puts us in the strongest place possible with the squad we have. So, so forget like judgments of, yeah. of summer transfer windows. Of the squad we have, the, the level of rotation he's done now, it does two things. It keeps fresh our best players for the end of the season. Yeah. It does three things. It keeps them on the pitch because they're not, they're not um, overloading which causes stress and causes injury. And the third thing is, it keeps everybody involved. So that when Coutinho goes down injured in November for six weeks, we don't ask Storage and Divi to come in and play, and they haven't played for eight weeks. Correct. But you've got to come and win this game for us now. So he's keeping all these players ticking over. It creates a great culture within the team. So maybe I want to see some kind of meritocracy going on so that at some point, um, I, I think, to be fair, I think there is very possibly one of the greatest um, examples of meritocracy that I've seen in football in Alberto Moreno. 
Correct. He's phenomenal this season. Rebirth. <laughs> so nobody can argue that he just he doesn't justify his place because he absolutely does. He's been one of our three best players. Yeah. And and so if that's not an example to the rest of the the club, the rest of those players, knuckle down, do what I say, you get back in the team. You've got every chance to get back in the team. I think, you know, phenomenal. So I think it's, it stands some really good stead. The only negative is it comes from fans, I think, is that we've, and, and the media because they're stupid, but we've whipped up a storm in four, in, in four games. We've gone from beating, thrashing Arsenal, knocking Hoffenheim out with two absolutely brilliant performances. Absolutely, yeah. To uh, losing to City with ten men. Like, who cares from the moment Mane gets sent off? Not even on the radar, finish with, not even a, a, a freak, whatever you want to call it, doesn't need consideration. Do you know what? I literally didn't watch the second half, huh? because it didn't matter. We were never coming back from no. that. So don't even get fussed about the four, it could have been ten, don't care. Yeah. I'm literally not thinking about it at all. Okay. Um, and, and then we've gone from that to uh, this huge catastrophe, because Mane is out, and then we, we don't beat Burnley, which... That, that leaves me the most upset yeah. of this situation because um, I, I, I'm well, well, people that have heard of me will be well aware of my uh, my beat the dross, win the league mantra, focus yeah. on winning the, the beat in the rubbish, just beat the teams that you should beat. Yeah. Those four teams that you probably shouldn't or find it hard to beat or might be better than you, they don't, they only count to 24 points, don't worry about those, just worry about beating the others. Yeah. And so that we didn't beat Burnley was a little bit okay. uh, disheartening. But we also created the most chances uh, under clock, apart from in two games, ever. So it, there was a bit of bad luck in there, but I understand how history goes against that. You know, it, it, it adds a layer of, of frustration to fans. Yeah. And then I literally didn't care less about, about Leicester. No. And, and, and people have managed to turn this, um, not beat, getting beaten ten, um, by City with 10 men, to a really unlucky Sevilla, yeah. um, to Burnley, there was some bad luck against Burnley, and probably better finishing on a better day, yeah. and then a game that really shouldn't matter, we actually should be thankful, I know we, we Liverpool exist to win trophies, but if we don't have a big enough squad to cover all of the necessary minutes of a run in that league, in that, that cup, yeah. which ruined our season last year... Correct. How much evidence do you need? It was literally this. I mean, Simon, I've got I've got to come in because you've used brilliantly, compelling. It's a word we often use in, in maybe a, 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 a wearing our other hats, as it were. But the evidence points to you know the the first half performance against Leicester when really we weren't that bothered. We could have said we weren't that bothered. Was absolutely beautiful football from many of the people, many of the players, that people that have been criticising, you go in their timelines, and why have we dropped da da da, and why have we taken Coutinho off? I mean, we could go into a whole, you know, um, tranche of uh, emotive stuff here, but the pure, simple truth of the matter is, in my opinion, we are as well prepared as we've ever been. We have got a great squad. The rotation will help us. We will make mistakes, because we're that kind of team. 
the look factor, you know, the more I practice, the luckier I get. You know, you can kind of use a whole range of other considerations here. But fundamentally, you know, the team is very good. If you did some research on golf, for example, and you analysed, you know, the stroke average from every single every single round of golf that they play and whatever, you'd be absolutely amazed at the difference between Jordan Spieth or Dustin Johnson as number one and the 2,000 or the 10,000 player in the world, the stroke average difference is less than one shot. That is how how the margins are so cute or are so, so important. And when you look at the very highest level between the teams that we're talking about, don't tell me that, you know, and what many people still do, the Gerard slip or, you know... Lovren missing the ball that came across. I mean, they're so margin. Does it make them terrible players? Does it make our manager somebody who is not good enough? I'd say the whole of this changes on two-tenths of a second. Okay. If Mane was, had reacted two-tenths of a second faster, two-tenths, he'd have touched the ball, Edison would have been sent off, we'd have had Correct. ten men, End of. No, none of this happened. No, I, I mean it was it was amazing that. Absolutely, I'm going to try. I so want to talk more and more in this interview, Sam, and we're, we're going to do it. I want to just put you know some other final thoughts or some development thoughts here. Liverpool Football Club, you know, brand. Or simply, you know, a, a place you go to watch football. I know that's a very kind of, maybe slightly provocative. You know, the spirit of Shankly, lots of others, the banners that were there when FSG famously said, you know, um, <laughs> putting the prices up and people had to react. There are obviously lots of differences. Thankfully, we're not in the Gillette Hicks regime, where on the first press conference, you know, they brought out the pound notes and started throwing them around kind of culture. FSG are proper owners. You've touched upon the American connection. I always follow American sport. I certainly follow American sport business education uh, and, and I think you're aware of that and, and I see a lot of good coming out of that. But with a club maybe based as Liverpool Football Club is, the heritage, the tradition, the history, is there... Is there a, a fine line between maybe both of those considerations? What are your perspectives on some or all of those thoughts, Simon? Yeah, I think we're in a unique position because of the, apart from just the match going day, I think Liverpool Football Club is so uniquely entrenched yeah. in Liverpool, the city, and the culture of the city. And the, the culture of the city, for people that don't know, is they aren't British, they're unique. Liverpool aren't from England. They have a very, very um, specific political views. Um, they are Liverpool against the world. They are the greatest team, greatest culture, greatest city on earth. And we do we have a set way to go about things. So you will have heard about the Liverpool way. The Liverpool way is not a football club Liverpool way. The Liverpool way is a Liverpool city way. And it, it involves socialism, and it involves caring for people, and it, it, and so 
It's very tricky. I understand people from Liverpool how how hard they find it aligning with with the supposed capitalism of a big American company coming yeah. over and buying our our club and turning it into a brand. Yeah. It's been a brand forever. However, you you now perceive it. Its, it's very existence creates a brand. Yeah. All they are doing is monetizing the brand for the betterment of the club. Otherwise, they would go bankrupt. Um, so, I think people from out of the city largely would see the brand as a good thing, and a lot of local people believe culturally, and I completely understand and respect their view, yeah. that, that it's, it's their club, it's, it's very much a, a Liverpool-centric socialist thing that they should be doing as part of their community, but it couldn't survive on that. They would just be, they would be basically um, Preston North End. Yeah. And I mean, that's why at that first conference that I allude to, the, the Gillette Hicks, when they talked about Liverpool as a franchise, wow, get out of here. You know, it can't be a franchise. And when, obviously, famously, FSG talked about, you know, the product. But I think what you've suggested there, and I mean, it, it's a very interesting consideration. And I put a few tweets out to various podcasts, some significant and influential and very good podcasts that you've already alluded to at the start of our interview today, to ask why is it right, because it isn't right, that so many fans, and they, they weren't pointing the finger at me, the fact that I live in Cambridge, but I spent most of my early years in Liverpool and have never left the city and never will, you know, that they kind of saying, you can't be a Liverpool fan unless you live in Liverpool. Well, that's absolute, utter nonsense, you know, and people and fans who talk like that don't, like you've rightly said, point to the whole history and culture and the way Liverpool Football Club is. Yeah, we can be very insular, and I'm saying we here as a member of the Liverpool family, but for all the good reasons that they do campaign, they do see, you know, social causes necessary, they do care for people, and they look after each other, you know, and do you'll never so walk alone, so I, I think it should be adopted way of life, I think, for a Liverpool fan. You know, absolutely engage that way, yeah. but then take all of the good things that, that Liverpool believes in as a, as a city. Um, but then also, you have to disregard the hypocrisy uh, that you get from said uh, group that, that believe it's a community thing, because then they're also slaughtering FSG for being tight and not spending £200 million on a player. Yeah. Simon. So we get emotional about yeah, these things, yeah. don't we? Brilliant. And... We're not going to end just this moment, but I think the calmness there, the emotion has come out, you know, not in extreme ways, but I think we've made some very, very considered points today. Before I let you leave, Simon, you're in education, you know, you talk about your time uh, at university and, uh, and Loughborough and Birmingham and you've obviously had a very satisfying career there what plans or what thoughts do you have on maybe the way education can kind of reach out a lot lot more the reason I want to really close on this and maybe we can still have some considered conversation here as you know I've set up a, a, a group that's talking about business conferences but the conferences per se are developing a lot more into other things not least that we're, we're talking about using podcasting and, and, and my show and other things to provide educational support for business students across the world and I'm going to do a global sport business conference 
to be launched and announcements in a few weeks' time later on in November, and I've got American students coming over, and I see a much more global, I see a much more integrative way of using lots of things like new media and technology, particularly in education, and hopefully going across and engaging in this way, rather more so than maybe just sitting in a classroom or reading a textbook or watching on the couch some kind of thing from television. And I think that all, all encompasses lots of the thing that sport is very good at. So give us some thoughts, Simon, before I reluctantly let you go in this interview to, to maybe put your um, spin or uh, your thoughts on that, Simon. I think it's interesting what you said about being worldwide. But, um, but I, a quick note about my background, I went to 16 schools when I was a kid. Wow. Um, I lived in five different countries. I am not like a, somebody from Liverpool okay. that, believes, that believes my city rules. I, I, my, my city does rule. I'm a, I, I live in the earth. And, and so I couldn't care what colour, what, what, like, um, what border you were born between. That stuff means nothing to me. And that's the, the, the greatest overriding brilliance of the internet is that how connective we are. And so I think, I think the great thing that, that the internet can do uh, for education is, I remember at uni we had Davy Thompson came in for okay. a guest lecture. Yeah. And he was great. Uh, I don't know how, how, I don't know how much he, he, he offered us from an educational perspective, but it was awesome to meet and to be around him. I later got to work with him, and he's one of my great heroes. Yeah. Um, what I think uh, education has the great, has the very simple opportunity and a great opportunity to do is to create forums and podcasts where it's taken as part of your education, your university course, or your your if you're studying uh, political science, if you're doing a GCSE in political science, you could get uh, they could um, they could get a podcast or an interview with Theresa May that you can ask questions to, or like it can connect the the great uh, economist from China, or you can learn some educational stuff from brilliant teachers in Norway. You can have all of this stuff connected together, so. So the, the materials that, that, that we have available to us to create apps, go back to that toolbox thing, yeah. because the thing I teach my kids, I've got a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old, and, and my goal for them is to create as rounded a human being as possible. I don't want them to live in Avalanche for the rest of their lives. I want them to go and live in New York, live in Berlin, go and live in Ho Chi Minh City, and find as much about themselves and the world as possible to make them as rounded as possible person as possible so that they can then decide where what makes them happy and where they can provide the most value for the world because I think it's really important that we do provide value for the rest of society we actually actively have to participate and and I think that connecting people in this way provides such an opportunity for that so so universities can cross uh, borders and and People can go and interact with different cultures, and I just think it's a wonderful opportunity for people right now. Simon, uh, I mean, we are notionally colleagues because we've had a connection on Twitter for some time. You kindly, and I was very, very appreciative that came to uh, the conference without really knowing me, but obviously you knew Steve Sinaro and, and one or two other people from the way I promoted the opportunity for my last conference. My next conference is a themed 
interactive celebration with 50 students coming over from the University of South Florida, a keynote from Dr. Bill Sutton, who is one of the gurus uh, of, of sport marketing and entertainment there. I'd be delighted, and I'm doing this publicly on air, so you can hardly say no, can you? But uh, we can talk. More, we we can talk more about this, obviously, over the coming weeks, uh, and, and we're, we're doing a whole range of things with them. They're coming over as a visitation uh, to see how we do culturally, socially, politically, and everything that sport does. Uh, and we're going to some football clubs, we're going to some venues, we're looking at all kinds of sport. And there is one thing particular that we're doing at a football club that I want to talk to you about, where we are going to look at performance analytics and various other things in an educational context as well as a business context. Fascinating to listen to you today, Simon. Really, really appreciate. Do you want to just do maybe some... The classic, not shout-outs, because I think everybody who's likely to be listening to this show will not only know of you, but will want to engage with you. But, but perhaps maybe just put some final thoughts together in any way in which uh, you know people can contact you before I close this interview. Oh, don't contact me. It's not a good idea. This, <laughs> this, is, the best, this is the best I can be. <laughs> uh, unless, unless you have mm-hmm. a primary school-aged child or you're a teacher and then go to strengthlab.co.uk and get them the times table of movement. So that when they, so that their primary school, which teaches them bad PE, uh, and I can say that because it's true, um, and I apologise to the three primary schools in the country that don't, um, then you can see our programme. They can assess. They can de- they can um, deliver the right kind of movements at the right stages with a progressive programme. Assess where the kids are. Kids can fo- have fun, engage in the programme. And you can be part of the data we're collecting to inform a change of practice at governmental level. So that would be wonderful. Get on strengthlab.co.uk, strengthlab superheroes. Thank you. I mean, Simon, I'm really, really uh, delighted that you've kind of come up with that as not a closing thing. Because just like we said about Twitter, this is only the beginning of lots of talking points and lots of opportunities that we've discussed. You know, I go back a little bit longer. I'm not ashamed to say, you know, in the very early 70s when I got my first job uh, as a school teacher in a school in Stephen Gerrard territory and found out that the um, one of the uh, teachers there uh, was, a, was a guy called Alan Bleasdale, who when you go back in time and look at the boys from the black stuff and various other things, uh, and so on. And, you know, I always... And I went in there to teach PE, you know, and to teach PE in a school like that wasn't necessarily the easiest of jobs that I had. But it's never left me because that connection you make with children, education, sport seeing multifaceted opportunities that, that can accrue from there, you know. And you need to keep learning, you know, the, the the kind of, you know, once a teacher, always a student mentality. That's what new technology, the more involvement with communication improvements has taught me. So I fully endorse what Simon has said to everybody out there, you know. Look at best practice, look at sport and PE and various other things. And our kids are our future, you know, and, and, and you doing it at that early stage is really, really um, to be applauded, Simon. So thanks for today's interview. You take care. Give a special shout out to the Redmen, uh, whoever we play next. Uh, and I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure, you know, 
Leicester, well there you go, Leicester again, yeah, Leicester away at the weekend, uh, and, and I look forward to talking to you again. You take care. Cheers.